Welcome to Modern Ancestral Mamas, a podcast for mamas created by mamas. We discuss ancestral food, cooking, feeding our families, and holistic living with the everyday modern mom. We are Corey and Christine, two mamas on a mission to nourish our families holistically while keeping it real in today's crazy world. Follow us on this adventure and enjoy the stories and information we share. Today's episode is sponsored by the Nurtured Foundations online course. The Nurtured Foundations course is a podcast style course to teach parents how to start solids with their baby. Are you a parent with a child from zero to 24 months? Well, then this online course is for you. This is a comprehensive course that empowers parents to start solid foods in a confident and safe way and raise adventurous and healthy eaters from the start. We cover topics such as when to start solids, the most nutrient-dense foods to feed your babies, recipes, troubleshooting, how to prevent picky eating, and so much more. If you want information on this course, go to nourishthelittles.com and click on the link Nurtured Foundations online course. You can also find a link to the Nurtured Foundations online course on my Instagram bio. Click on the link and look for Nurtured Foundations online course. Welcome back to Modern Ancestral Mamas. Thank you for being here today and taking the time to listen. Our episode today is going to be geared for all of those pregnant mamas and those parents with babies. We know that in today's modern world, there can be so many different recommendations for how pregnant women should eat. And oftentimes women will heed the advice of their doctor or their midwife or, you know, maybe pregnancy books or certain three-letter agencies. Um, And oftentimes these recommendations generally discount the importance of nutrition during pregnancy or they have outdated and incorrect nutritional information. And here on Modern Ancestral Mamas, we know that nutrition does matter before conception and during pregnancy and especially postpartum. And so this is one of the reasons why we wanted to bring on an expert onto the show to talk about nutrition during pregnancy. And this is just like, I feel like I'm fangirling hardcore right here Um, because today's guest is Lily Nichols. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Lily, we are so happy to have you here today. Corey, do you want to say hello as well? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I really wish you had written your book sooner than you did because I'd already had two and a half babies by the time I read your book. (laughs) So (laughs) I was pregnant with my third one when I was reading it and I was like, oh, I needed this so much sooner than I got it. But it's okay. I had one and a half after I'd read it. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. I, uh, I hear that a lot. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. It's crazy how, um, I mean, every, every single, you know, mom group or whatever that I'm in, if somebody says, what's the best book for, you know, how do I know what to eat while I'm pregnant? And everybody, everybody jumps in and says, Lily Nichols book, you've got to read it hands down. 
Um, oh, that's so, so good to hear because I'm not in those groups. So I, don't, I don't know what's being said in there. Oh that's what's being no. said. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I usually, if if I have a friend that's pregnant, it's the number one book that I'll gift. Uh, oh, I'll gift you. them. So, but I, I do want to introduce you in case we have any listeners who are not familiar with you. So I'm just going to give you, give a brief inter- introduction. Lily Nichols is a registered dietitian, a certified diabetes educator, a researcher, and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition. Her work is known for being research-focused, thorough, and critical of outdated dietary guidelines. I think that that is just key right there. Outdated (laughs) dietary guidelines. Maybe we need to emphasize that. Um, She is founder of the Institute for Prenatal Nutrition, co-founder of the Women's Health Nutrition Academy, and the author of two books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Lily's best-selling books have helped tens of thousands of mamas and babies and are used in university-level maternal nutrition and midwifery courses, and they have even influenced prenatal nutrition policy internationally. And she writes at, and then she gives her website, which is lilynicholsrd.com. So this is today's guest, Lily Nichols. We're, you know, we already said we're honored to have her on. Um, and we wanted to just dive right in because we know that there's so much information to cover. And so Lily, if you don't mind just starting with a little bit of your backstory and sharing with our listeners how you got started down this path of, uh, becoming a registered dietitian, writing about nutrition, and also how did you shift? I'm so intrigued. I, okay. So real quick side note, my college roommate went through the registered dietitian program and it's atrocious. I mean, I saw what they were teaching her, um, heard from her, what they were teaching her, heard. I mean, to this day, she still follows everything to a T and like doesn't really know that, um, the food recommendations are pretty poor. (laughs) Yeah. Let me offer first before I jump in a quick housekeeping note that my website is RDN at the end. So lilynicholsrdn.com. Just throwing that out there in case any listeners are looking it up and they're like, hey, this is not working. Um, We'll put that in the show notes. I get asked a lot about, um, you know, my my background and journey into dietetics. So I had a little bit of a different experience in that um, I didn't enter into my program with rose-colored glasses. I had already been very much interested in the effect of just how food affects your well-being and already kind of dabbled in some different ways of eating, including being vegetarian. But I did um, an a internship, I guess you could call it, working with a nutritionist who followed more ancestral nutrition approach. And she, um, you know, lent me a copy of Nourishing Traditions oh, by Sally okay. I was introduced to like Weston Price uh, sort of information really early on um, as a teenager. So when I entered into my dietetics program, I I kind I didn't fully know what I was getting into, right? Like you kind of get more and more disappointed over time. <laughs> In some ways, in other ways, I mean, I have to throw it a bone because it's not all bad, but it became very clear to me early on in the program, like, oh, okay, this is like the textbooks are 
you know, all based on government dietary guidelines. Um, and so I'm only going to get like a certain type of information. You do get like a really strong science background, which has proved very, very helpful uh, in my career. And I also took a lot of different extracurriculars in different departments. Not extracurriculars, like um, what do they call those? When Just you outside choose- of your major? Outside of my major. So I was taking classes in like the plant, soil, and insect sciences department on, you know, pesticides, public policy, and the environment. I was taking clinical herbalism. I like talked my way into some graduate level nutrition courses that went a little deeper than um, my undergrad. And then any opportunity I had, I was doing projects that I was basically trying to see like, is all this stuff that Weston Price wrote about, is it actually legit? So I was like, oh, I have access to all these medical journals. Um, back then, this is before the era of being able to find uh, <laughs> free free copies of scientific literature online. Um, you had to have like library access. So I'm like, I'm going to take advantage of having four years of like interlibrary loan stuff and I can get whatever research I can get my hands on, right? So I was reading about vitamin D and vitamin K2 and, you know, magnesium and phytates and just artificial sweeteners and like toxicity studies. And I was reading about all this stuff, basically trying to see like, well, who has the right answer here about nutrition? So um, I decided to stick with it. Once you're in it, you may as well just get the letters, you know, behind your name. And like I said, it wasn't all bad. I had some really great professors. I really appreciated the science background. Um, The clinical internship was uh, definitely a little bit uh, painful. I did that at like the largest hospital in Los Angeles. Um, but you learn a lot, like sometimes being within learning, like how dietitians exist within this conventional medicine box helps you understand where to go outside of that box. And also I can, I, I can acknowledge that there is really for conventional dietetics, there is a very essential role for them in critical care situations. Like if you need, you know, tube feeding or you need like intravenous nutrition, you definitely want a good dietitian on your team. Like working in the burn unit was absolutely fascinating. Um, But I did a little bit of work amidst that in the maternal care area. And that one was that was definitely the area that lit me up the most. And um, I pursued several opportunities after getting my um, dietetics uh, certification in that arena. So maternal nutrition, childhood nutrition always very much interested me. And when it got to the work I started doing in gestational diabetes, I learned that like, wow, these children face a higher risk of type two diabetes like for their lifetime, if their mother's blood sugar is not in the healthy range as much as possible. Right. I was like, wow, this is crazy. Cause this is something that we can really impact two people at the same time, rather than just like, you know, in a conventional clinical setting, you're often just like trying to help a middle-aged man manage his diabetes is like sometimes like talking to a brick wall, but women who are (laughs) pregnant are very much interested in doing the best that they can for their babies, like literally across all 
income levels, socioeconomic status, like, yes, it can be more challenging in low resource settings, but they still want to do the best they can for their baby. Um, and so that's really what kept me in the field. And then once in the field, uh, you know, I started doing quite a bit of work in gestational diabetes and being trying to be like a good dietitian and also having, you know, a little bit of trepidation about doing anything outside the norm. I did follow the standard guidelines for gestational diabetes and it just was not working for my client's blood sugar levels. I mean, half of the time they were still requiring medication or insulin to manage their blood sugar. And I had already come to the realization just in my own personal life, wow, I do a whole lot better when I get more protein and more fat and like a lower proportion of my diet from carbohydrates without eliminating them necessarily, but not 45 to 65% of my diet as the guidelines tell you to do. And that's really what launched me into really diving deep into how our nutrition guidelines were even set. Like, what is the evidence even used to say this? I may disagree with it, but like, what's the evidence used to set that? And what is some newer evidence we have that maybe shows where there's gaps in those guidelines and where we could improve them? And so all of that ultimately led to the writing um, of really both of my books is like, let's, let's look at what's going on here with these guidelines. Let's look at the evidence here and how can we do better? How can we optimize both mom and baby's health? Wow. That, that's, that's so cool that you already knew a little bit about nourishing traditions and that you were kind of, um, already exposed to that world from the beginning. I'm so I'm for, for the listeners that have not read your books, can you talk a little bit about, because <laughs> I feel like I have a thousand questions that I want to ask you. So I'm trying to control myself. Um, but <laughs> the, so we know, or, you know, some of us know that the protein recommendations for pregnant women is just suboptimal. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about why why is it that there is not more protein being recommended for pregnant women? Number one, uh, maybe touch a little bit on the research that they're using to back their claims. Um, and then number two, talk about how much is the adequate protein level for pregnant women? Yeah, so... <laughs> Protein recommendations being inadequate applies across all age and sex groups. I'm just going to throw that out there. But, yeah, for sure. Um, and the way in which we even study protein has changed dramatically in the last 20 years. So I, I can touch on that a little bit. But when it comes to anything pregnancy related, it's almost amazing to me that we even have RDAs set for pregnancy for anything <laughs> because the line of evidence used to set those recommendations is extremely small and extremely limited. Um, so the RDA for protein was set before they had any direct studies on protein requirements in pregnant women. No so, way. Uh, yeah, so, so a lot of, of like nothing here. <laughs> Well, they uh, almost all of our nutrient recommendations are based on adult men, estimated needs right, for yeah. adult men. And then when they I extrapolate, tell people that their heads like explode. They're like, "What are yeah. you talking?" About? 
And then they extrapolate it based on body size. So usually women are assumed to need less of things than men because we have smaller bodies in general. And, um, and the, most, most of these things like protein, for example, is usually a weight calculation. Um, we require fewer calories than men because we have smaller bodies. Therefore, our protein needs are lower as well. And then for pregnancy, they usually estimate, they do a like mathematical or they call it a factorial estimate based on weight. Like you gain weight during pregnancy. Therefore, you need more calories and more food and thus more protein. And then they sometimes add in an additional factor for like the mass of the baby and how much protein they can estimate is required for fetal development. But it's all really like, they're all best guesses. So um, the first ever study we had that directly estimated protein requirements in pregnancy. And as far as I know, it's still the only one that has done this type of study. That was done in 2015. And that found that, oh, oops, our protein recommendations for pregnancy were set uh, at least uh, 39% too low for early pregnancy and 73% oh too low for late pregnancy. So this isn't like they made an error wait, wait, wait. of 5%. 73? 73% too low. That's insane. Yeah. That's a huge so, amount. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's not like, oh, we're off just by a little bit. That's like we are massively wrong and yes we are not <laughs> admitting that and making a bigger deal about it to the public <laughs> it 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 desperately needs to be updated if they are only going to update one thing on the pregnancy nutrition guidelines it would be to update the protein recommendations now of course that would result in changes to the macronutrient recommendations because yeah. you have to have a balance of Ooh. calories from the all three, yeah. and, and hopefully that would result in a slight decrease in their carbohydrate recommendations, which are set too high in my opinion. Um, but yeah, if they could if they could change one thing, just a shift to their macronutrient recommendations would be greatly beneficial. Um, there was actually a study done fairly recently in the last couple of years where they looked at protein intakes of U.S. pregnant women, it was a fairly diverse uh, population that they were studying. And they looked at their protein intake relative to the current recommendations versus the findings from that 2015 study, the optimal levels. And they found that, I believe it was 40% of second trimester mothers were not hitting the optimal recommendations. And I think it was something like 67% of third trimester moms were not hitting the optimal recommendations. Now, all of them were hitting the RDA because the RDA is like bare bones, like basement level <laughs> protein that no, like it, nobody has trouble reaching the RDA. Um, maybe it's, vegetarians and vegans struggle a little more, but most people meet it. Yeah. It's my understanding that the RDA is the bare minimum, like for, bare minimum. for survival. Yes. Bare, <laughs> bare, bare minimum, not yeah. at all what's required for optimal function. And there's, there's actually a really excellent 2023 paper on this that came out and they're looking at protein recommendations across all like different age groups, life stages um, and they, you know, summarize the information on pregnancy as well as lactation. Uh, but across the board, the protein recommendations are set way too low. And there have been 
like literally dozens of protein researchers have been like calling the alarm on this for years and years. And what's silly about it is that raising the protein recommendations wouldn't necessarily negate anything in the guidelines because there's different ways of defining protein recommendations. We have like the RDA, which is like a gram amount of protein per a certain amount of body weight, but you also have a percentage of calories recommendation. They call it the acceptable macronutrient distribution range or AMDR. And that's set at 10 to 35% of calories from protein that government says is perfectly fine. The RDA sits at about 10% of calories of protein. Very, very bottom level, but they already acknowledge that you can eat high protein and it still can be a perfectly balanced diet within the, the guidelines, but they won't adjust the RDA up. It doesn't make any sense. They really should. Um, I don't know what it's going to take for them to do that. Wow. Mm. This is, it, it almost, it makes you want to scream. <laughs> like, why, why isn't something being done about this? Which actually I'm hoping that we can touch on later because I, I think you are trying to fight for this. But could you tell our listeners what would be your recommended amount for protein for pregnant women? So per that 2015 study, they looked at, they didn't even look at RDA. They were looking at like a lower nutrient recommendation called an EAR, acceptable or um, estimated average requirement. That's, that's, that's a level of protein that meets like 50% of the population's needs. Whereas an RDA is meant to meet like 97 to 98%. So EAR is already low. So I'm, I'm going to use these numbers because we don't have an RDA recommendation yet but you should use this as a minimum. That study found that pregnant women need uh, 1.22 grams per kilogram of protein. So grams of protein per kilogram of body weight in early pregnancy. In late pregnancy, it was 1.52. So if you, and you always base these recommendations on pre-pregnancy body weight. So let's just use an arbitrary example. You weigh 150 pounds before conceiving your protein needs in early pregnancy. And these are like, you know, not exact calculations because I like round numbers for ease. About 80 grams of protein minimum early pregnancy, late pregnancy, 100 grams of protein minimum. This is on a daily basis, right? On a daily basis. And these are minimum because there are going to be people who need a lot more than that. If we were to calculate the RDA based on these numbers, we'd probably be looking at more like 1.6 to 1.8 grams per kilogram. But again, those haven't been set. So I, that's like off the record. Um, so I use the EAR, but I go by that as like a minimum and arguably you might benefit from eating like 20 to 30 grams more of protein than even those levels. So, so for people who are, you know, not numbers people, what does that look like? Like, what are your, what, what is, you know, are you eating five eggs for breakfast and then a whole steak for lunch and then two burgers for dinner? Or like, what are we talking here? Yeah. So, I mean, if you're going by animal protein, which definitely makes it much easier to meet these numbers, an egg, depending on the size of the egg, is usually about six or seven grams of protein. I buy large eggs, so I usually go by seven per egg. So if you're having a full breakfast, say you're splitting that 100 grams of protein across three meals and maybe some snacks, arguably you should be aiming for close to 30 grams of protein at each meal and a little bit of protein at your snack, especially if you're aiming even a little higher than that. 
So yeah, so that's like mark. four so, eggs for breakfast. Yeah, that would be like four eggs, or you could do two or three eggs and then have another um, more protein dense option. Like eggs have a lot of liquid in them. And so right. even though it's like three eggs seems like a lot, but it's not quite as concentrated as like meat because an ounce of meat has seven grams of protein. So a little ounce of chicken, I mean, you can fit like a three ounce or so piece of chicken breast on the palm of your hand. That right there is like 21 grams of protein. It just mm-hmm. takes up a lot less space than right. yeah, that three eggs, sense. right? Um, so if you were to match that with like some sausage or bacon or cheese, or maybe you have a piece of toast with your meal and you put peanut butter on it or cheese on it or a piece of ham, or um, maybe you have a glass of milk alongside the meal, that'll give you another like eight or so grams of protein in your glass of milk. Um, you can balance it out with, other things. Um, Greek yogurt can be very high in protein, cottage cheese as well. Um, So those are sometimes good options. Of course, you have your nuts and seeds, you have your legumes, you get little bits of protein in almost everything. It's like they're most concentrated in our like protein rich foods, but even your bread is going to have like a couple grams of protein in there, right? So even if you're not getting all of it from a a solid protein source at that meal, you might get a handful of grams of protein coming in from other places. So you don't have to be extremely nitpicky or exact about it. Um, but I do find most women typically like somewhere between 20 to 30 grams of protein as a, as a minimum goal at meals tends to work really well. Late pregnancy, well, early pregnancy could be challenging because you have the food aversions and the nausea and you might have to get creative about which protein sources are not averse to you. Um, Late pregnancy can be challenging in its own way because you're just so, your, your belly is like so distended and your stomach has so little room from the baby taking up all the space. Um, that you might need to split it into more like six small meals. Like you might just have that you're just so full so early that you can't take in large portions at one time. So you do have to get creative at different stages to make it work. That's super helpful. Thank you for breaking that up a little bit. Um, Speaking of foods, if you could recommend one food that every pregnant woman needs to eat regularly, what would it be? I would choose eggs with the yolks. Um, Of course, we already talked about protein, but some of the nutrients most commonly lacking in a prenatal diet, many of them um, are found in eggs. And there's some specific ones like choline is a B vitamin-like compound that's really beneficial to baby's brain development and to placental function. Eggs really are the the major dietary source of choline, like half of the choline that an average American eats comes from eggs. Um, so I, I would probably choose eggs. I've, I'm also choosing them because they are generally like people enjoy them. They're easy to put in other dishes, uh, meat eater or not. You have many vegetarians who will also eat eggs. I just feel like it's an easy sell. Um, I could pick other foods like liver, but (laughs) that's a hard sell. And I also don't think you have to eat it every single day. Whereas eggs are something you, you could have every day, you don't have to have them every single day, but you could have them every day and and be perfectly fine. Funny story. Corey, do you want to tell her? What that, that I don't like eggs. 
Corey, Corey doesn't eat eggs. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that I don't eat them. Like I just do not. I I cannot eat like a straight up egg. Yeah, like if it's yeah. in some, I can put it in a smoothie, like an egg yolk in a smoothie, or I can use them for baking or even making, um, you know, Dutch baby pancakes where it's it has a more eggy flavor, but it's not full on like a scrambled egg or something. Yeah. I can do that. But just straight up eggs. And especially when I was pregnant, there was no way in hell. <laughs> yeah. Well, the good news is you can get choline in other places. So especially if you're an omnivore, if you're just eating a significant quantity of animal food in your diet, you'll you'll meet your you can still meet your choline needs without eggs. It's a bit more of a challenge. It can be done. <laughs> and I get it. Everybody has we all have our different weird things with food that <laughs> don't appeal so that's i would definitely fun. rather eat liver than eggs so but wow. you know that's, wow. that's me <laughs> that is the first time that i've heard that yeah <laughs> bone up on liver that's yeah. fine yeah, yeah. <laughs> um okay so we need to backtrack a little bit because i think this is an important conversation that doesn't get had very often about preconception and yeah. um what what would be the best recommendations for men and women? Because I know we, we're obviously pregnancy, you're just talking about women, but preconception, there's um, at least historical evidence that men should be prepping for this as well. So what are your, what are your thoughts on how important is it to prep? Is it important to prep? Um, and, you know, then there's people like, like me who didn't really prep for pregnancy because it wasn't planning on it. But, um, <laughs> you know, obviously that's not the ideal situation. So what it, what was an ideal situation and what can we be doing to really make sure that we're both partners are coming into this with the best, um, available. Nutrition, I guess. Yeah. Or health. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're, you're not alone. I mean, 50% of pregnancies in the U S are unplanned. So <laughs> if, if you're healthy, um, you know, the thing, the kinds of things that you're doing to support fertility are really things that support your overall health. So, um, if you're eating nutrient dense foods, then, you know, do you need to do anything extra special? Like it might be just more of the same, right? Mm -hmm. um, and clearly, if you're ovulating and able to conceive, your you know your body's in a good place to carry a baby, right? So good job. Um, but yes, a, 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 if you have the luxury of planning a period of time preconception to build up your nutrient stores, really is ideal for you and your partner. Um, this is actually the the focus of my next book, which is coming out in early 2024. Is all all about fertility, um, and we do include information That's about exciting. about men. <laughs> yeah. Woohoo! Um, so, one of the ways to look at it is like your body is like a bank account, and pregnancy and lactation arguably are the time of the greatest withdrawals from your nutritional bank account. And so you want to build up your savings in advance of pregnancy so you don't end up depleted during or after the fact. 
You can also look at it from the angle of optimizing egg and sperm quality, right? Your baby is made from the genetic material from the egg and the sperm. Um, If you can actually improve the quality of your eggs and the quality of sperm, reduce levels of like DNA sperm fragmentation, DNA sperm damage um, with better nutrition and like healthier lifestyle choices. So if you look at the time it takes for sperm to develop, it's, I think it's about 77 days and the latter stages of egg development prior to ovulation, it's in the range of, I think it's about 74, maybe a little more days. Um, If you look in that range, I mean, it's pretty close overlap. That was three months leading up to ovulation and the time of conception is really like the time you're going to make the biggest impact on egg and sperm quality um, for what's going to be released at that time of conception. So with the hopes of, you know, that this like miracle works out and egg is fertilized, your body is healthy enough, endometrium is healthy enough for the egg to securely implant and for the whole process to go down. Um, So yeah, a couple months, definitely longer than that is arguably even better. Like the longer your body is in a state of sufficient nutrients and hormone balance. And for women, like ovulating regularly, regular menstrual cycles, um, that's a sign that your hormones are in balance. Um, having a, a, the second half of your menstrual cycle from ovulation to the start of your period be a sufficient length is a sign that your progesterone levels are high enough for you to be able to both like get pregnant, but also for you to not lose the baby in early pregnancy. Like you need sufficient progesterone levels, um, for that to, for that pregnancy to remain viable. So all of those things like kind of work together and, you know, as for what that looks like with diet and lifestyle, I mean, the same foods that help you get pregnant are the ones that help you stay pregnant. So, um, you know, while this next book will have all just, a whole bunch of information on this topic in much more detail than I'm going into here. Uh, In terms of the food, it's a lot of the same foods that you emphasize for pregnancy as well. You, You know, some of the roles of these key micronutrients that benefit baby's development, some of their like most important roles are actually in the first eight weeks of pregnancy when you're in the period of embryogenesis. So the, when the, cells are differentiating and like essentially choosing or being told however it works which organ or tissue it's going to end up as like that's where things can go wrong and where low levels of nutrients can contribute to the development of things like neural tube defects or other birth defects so that's really a reflection of your preconception nutrient intake right because this is before you even know that you're pregnant for the most part Because the way in which pregnancies are dated, it's based on your last menstrual period. So by the time you're supposedly four weeks pregnant, that's only two weeks post conception, right? Mm -hmm. And between, so four and eight weeks, you got like maybe a month (laughs) from the time you find out. Neural tube is usually closed by week like five to six. So this is why there's like this big push on folate intake preconception, right? It's like we have to set the stage ahead of time. It's really hard to raise nutrient levels up to adequate amounts if you only have two weeks or less even to intervene. Um, 
So yeah, more of your eggs, organ meats, uh, meat, red meat, all your protein, absolutely vital, fish, seafood, vegetables, fruit, fermented foods, whole fat dairy products. Um, I, I would even throw in, you know, if you tolerate them well, like legumes and, you know, small amounts of fermented grains, like sourdough and stuff like that, totally fine. Healthy fats, avocados, like all these whole foods, take your pick, take your mix. Um, these are the foods that are the most nutrient dense. So as long as those foods primarily are making up the bulk of your diet and it's not mostly white flour products, white sugar products, corn syrup, vegetable oils, trans fat, uh, processed soy products and all that, like you're setting yourself up for a healthy, healthy body that is able to conceive. That's great. I'm so glad that you listed those foods out. For the listener that's wondering, okay, what about prenatal vitamins? Because that, that is a whole nother rabbit hole. What are your thoughts on prenatal vitamins? So I look at prenatal vitamins like an insurance policy. Um, they're not a replacement for a whole food, real food diet, but they do offer us a level of insurance. I mean, the fact is 41% of women of childbearing age have at least one micronutrient deficiency. And it's even higher for women who are pregnant or breastfeeding. So imagine women who have had multiple pregnancies and have, and have uh, breastfed multiple babies. I mean, chances that you're low in at least one micronutrient is actually pretty high. Which one is it? Well, is your provider doing like comprehensive micronutrient testing? I mean, that's just extremely rare to do. You can do that and like pick and choose your supplements, individual supplements to kind of make up for and, and uh you know, correct deficiencies. It's just, that's extremely rare. So a comprehensive prenatal is in my opinion, your insurance policy to make sure you have your, your needs met. And um, yeah, I think there's all sorts of various controversies about everything. I mean, I'm certainly a foods first uh, kind of dietitian where I really want to get people eating more real food and become less reliant on supplements. And certainly if your diet is like very dialed in and you feel excellent, maybe your need for supplements is less than somebody else who feels extremely depleted or their diet isn't really dialed in. Um, I still chose to supplement with a prenatal vitamin during both of my pregnancies and preconception and breastfeeding, uh, even though I've been eating real food for like decades. Not that I'm perfect. I mean, I, I sometimes eat less, less than stellar options as well. Um, but for the most part, I've been like eating mostly homemade foods. And when I'm eating out, I'm trying to eat well. I've been trying to get sufficient protein for literally decades. I haven't been cutting out fat from my diet since my teens. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I've really tried to make an effort and even still, I've run micronutrient analyses and my, my levels are not all optimal, right? So it's a challenge. We all have different biochemistry and different, you know, genetic factors that can influence our levels and metabolism of nutrients. And some of us need more of some things than others. It's just nice to have that like fallback just in case you're too low in something. So, um, 
are all this is going to be a like stupid question but but I think an important one are are all um prenatal vitamins the same like could we just go to CVS and just pull one off the shelf and be covered I would advise against that so people <laughs> <laughs> no people but it's a good question Corey yeah it is a good question I'm, I'm the a one lot of people like have trying to bring us down to the level of most people okay yes <laughs> I yeah, have tell me about nutrition Christine has training in nutrition so I'm the one who's gonna have to be like let me ask the stupid questions and it makes me look really dumb but I'm here for I'm here for not that at all. Mom. <laughs> no, not at all. And you tell me what level of information. No, uh, that's you been awesome. I'm just, I think this is an important question to ask. <laughs> it is. And it's not a dumb question. There's no such thing as dumb questions. Um, you only think it's dumb because you know my answer already. <laughs> there is no requirement among among supplement manufacturers or the government or anything on what what constitutes a vitamin that you can market towards pregnant women or even women in general, like you know, women's multivitamin, it could be identical to the men's one. There's no like rules on what nutrients you put in or leave out or what levels. There's probably some, you know, kind of industry best practices, but there's no like requirement that they're hitting certain benchmarks to call it a prenatal. So there's all sorts of garbage on the market. I mean, most manufacturers really are going on a level of um, cost and trying to keep capsule count or tablet count down as much as possible. So a lot of manufacturers, (laughs) exactly. So a lot of manufacturers are choosing their prenatals um, just based on how much can you fit in one capsule. And they're going to hit some of the more mainstream nutrients at certain levels, but probably leave out a whole bunch of other ones. So I've never seen a prenatal that's too low in folate, for example. Literally have never seen one that's too low in folate. They all hit the folate. Now, the form of folate might be garbage, but they all hit a certain level of folate. I've also never seen a prenatal that has dangerous levels of vitamin A. They all stay below 10,000 IUs of vitamin A per day. Um, beyond that, it's like a complete crapshoot out there. So you have some prenatals that have like, you know, eight nutrients and you're like, Oh, we've chosen like these top eight nutrients. I'm like, what the hell are you even talking about? Why did you include boron? If you only had eight to choose from what in the world? So not going to call out brand names, but you can guess which one that is. Um, garbage. Okay. That's a garbage product, all marketing. Um, in order to even get anywhere close to like RDA levels of nutrients, you, you're going to need at least like three capsules. You occasionally have some products that will very intentionally choose the most heavy hitting nutrient that could fit a lot of things into, but not hundred percent. I mean, the most comprehensive ones in the market, they need eight capsules to get in the full needs for all the nutrients. And that's because if you are going to hit all of the nutrients And many of these products, I mean, they have 20 plus vitamins and minerals in them, right? They're hitting all of them. If you're going to hit choline requirements, that alone might require three or four capsules out of the daily dosage because choline is extremely bulky. It takes up a lot of capsule space. Choline is also really expensive as an, an ingredient in supplements. So that drives up the cost. Then you've got the minerals. 
calcium, magnesium, if you're going to hit anywhere near RDA levels for those nutrients, you're taking up another couple capsules. It's like the things that are big, like large amounts of like milligram doses of nutrients take up space. And then if you're looking for mm. forms that are optimally absorbed, they cost more money. And so it's challenging. I mean, I, I'm friends with several people who have developed really excellent prenatal vitamin formulas, and it is really challenging to get everything you want in and keep the capsule count reasonable and keep the cost reasonable. A lot of times these, these companies that are the ones that really care are doing it at a very small profit margin because it's just so hard to get it to the right levels. So um, yeah, I, I kind of went off on a tangent there, but yeah, not all prenatal vitamins are created equal. Definitely not. Um, you want to look at the forms of nutrients, the dosage of nutrients, the array of nutrients that are included, um, and think beyond just cop cost and capsule count. And, you know, maybe a more comprehensive prenatal is more of more important to some people than others, depending on the quality of their diet. Um, but certainly for somebody with a, you know, suboptimal diet, they're probably not the ones considering a, you know, a comprehensive prenatal versus <laughs> a, a non-comprehensive prenatal. They're, they're probably not even thinking about a prenatal whatsoever, unfortunately. Um, but those, those sorts of folks who really have a low nutrient intake, they're the ones who can really benefit from one that's like hitting all the marks for every single one. At some point you had a, um, email or something like that, that you could, or you had on your, I don't know if it was on your website or an email list or something that, that you had like looked over the prenatal vitamins and had a re recommend, couple recommendations. Do you still have that? Yes, I do. Um, and the link for that is in chapter six of Real Food for Pregnancy. I do also, um, on my Instagram page, Lily Nichols RDN, scroll through my story highlights. There is a story highlight called Supplements. And I link out to my my top two favorites. So if you don't have the book and don't have the link to my like full list, um, you can at least go with one of the top two. And both of those are really excellent choices. Okay, thank you Great. for that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so interesting to hear you break it down like that because I've never thought about the density of these nutrients in capsule form and how you mentioned you were you would have to take many capsules to be able to. Uh, get these requirements. And it just, I think it reinforces the idea that food first, food first, food first, nutrient density first really is the most important thing that you can do. Because, you know, if you're, if a supplement company is trying to make choline into a powder form into a capsule, well, why not just eat the eggs and yeah. you're not paying that, uh, that price uptick in a freeze dried <laughs> egg yolk or, you know, um, anyway, it's just, yeah, it, you can yeah. save a significant amount of, of money by, <laughs> by just like eating whole foods. I mean, it's hard. There's a trade off that the real foods are more expensive. And so yeah. there's a trade off, right. But you're also getting more from food than just isolated nutrients. And you're also getting them in you still have to quantities eat. <laughs> with things. Yeah, you still have to eat, right? Yeah. Um, so I I would still rather people include the quality, improve the quality of their diet 
um, before resorting to supplements to fill in the gaps. Like I'd rather you focus there before supplements, but again, it, it depends on the person. Like some people are so severely deficient that the concentrations that are in food are, are not going to bring you up to optimal levels for a while. There's so much nutrient repletion that needs to happen and supplements certainly they have their place too. So it's not a either, or it's like a yes. And kind of a conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. important. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, what were you going to say, Corey? No, go ahead. no, I was just going to say we're, I'm, we're conscious of your time, but we, what, what, Corey, what do you think? Gestational diabetes or postpartum? Um, let's do gestational diabetes. Cause we have, we have one on postpartum that we, from a couple seasons ago, people can go back and listen to that. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. I think if I were a pregnant woman right now, probably one of the burning questions that listeners might have is what are your thoughts on the dreaded glucose test? Yeah. So my, my feelings are mixed and I'll explain why. Um, so I've worked like at the public policy level on gestational diabetes policy with the state of California, I've worked clinically with gestational diabetes in uh, a variety of settings, one of which was like very low, low resource underserved uh, population. And I've seen the, the damaging effects of gestational diabetes gone on undiagnosed or unmanaged. And so I do think it's important to identify ensure that your blood sugar is in a healthy range in pregnancy. And the glucola is currently the gold standard for diagnosing gestational diabetes, whether or not I agree with that is a different story, but it has its place. And I think um, it should be used carefully, but I think we should also be offering alternatives to the glucola for those where it makes sense. So the glucola has pros and cons. Uh, The whole point of the test is to drink a concentrated amount of sugar, glucose, and to measure precisely how much your blood sugar goes up and how quickly it comes down after drinking that. and if it's beyond a certain threshold, then it may be, you may be considered positive for gestational diabetes. And there's different types of glucose tolerance tests out there. There's different, different glucolas. Um, it can range from 50 to 75 to 100 grams of glucose. And some, they only do you know, one test. Some, there's a screening test followed by a diagnostic test. There's different ways to do it. Unfortunately, the one the U.S. mostly opts for outside of select places in California is uh, a type that is not quite as accurate as the one that is used essentially almost everywhere else in the world, which is a single glucose tolerance test of 75 grams of glucose. But I digress. Um, I think the one of the big considerations, if you are going to do the glucose tolerance test, this is like ingredients aside, because that's a whole other conversation. There's all sorts of weird additional ingredients other than the glucose in certain glucola formulations. So you might want to look at the ingredients and there are alternatives if you're going to do yeah. 
Coca-Cola, like there's the fresh test. There might be some other ones out there that have less yucky ingredients. But if you're going to do the sugar load, like that's the point of it, um, make sure that you're not eating very low carb leading up to the test. Um, you'd want to have at least 150 grams of carbs in your diet for at least a week leading up to the time that you take the test. Otherwise, there is a chance of a false positive on it. Mm. Um, your pancreas kind of downregulates insulin production to what you normally eat. So I've written about this uh, extensively. That chapter nine of Real Food for Pregnancy has like a whole bunch of detail on the pros and cons of different diagnostic tests, by the way. Um, but I also have like a two-part series on my blog from, it's kind of old. It's like, over five years ago, because this is um, yeah, well over five years ago now. What what year is it? Um, <laughs> eight years ago? Gosh, it has to be eight years ago. This is when I was pregnant with my first. Um, you can you can fail a glucose tolerance test and not have gestational diabetes, particularly at that first screening test. So I I want people to be aware of that because there are times when like if you're not willing to carb load you might want to try to bargain with your provider for a different option for the glucose screening. And I'm a really big fan of home glucose monitoring personally. It is a challenge for providers because you have to have a provider who knows what in the world they're looking at with pregnancy blood sugar levels. If they don't like real food for pregnancy has a chart in there that'll guide you through what you're looking at. Um, but it's surprisingly hard to interpret blood sugar patterns without like a background in this, especially if you're just like lay public, this is the first time you've ever even worked with a glucometer. Like what am I even looking at? But I personally am a big fan of that as an option because you get, you know, one or two full weeks of your body's response to eating. You can see, you know, one or two weeks of your fasting blood sugar. Like what's your baseline levels when you wake up in the morning? That's often not always a reflection of what's happening overnight as well. Like, how are you doing after meals? How good is your carbohydrate tolerance or not? How did you do after two slices of pizza or a large bowl of pasta versus your meal of steak and broccoli? You know, like what, how, how did you handle these different foods? How do you do after that smoothie? How about your breakfast of eggs versus your breakfast of oatmeal? You can just glean so much more information and, I think the the key point about the blood sugar levels in pregnancy is it, it's not whether or not you have gestational diabetes. It's like, where are your blood sugar levels at in your pregnancy? It is the proactive choice to keep your blood sugar in a healthy range as much as possible your whole pregnancy. And even women without an official diagnosis of gestational diabetes are often having blood sugar spikes beyond what is healthy. And that's not optimal for you, your risk of pregnancy complications, or your baby's development. So this is kind of like, this is a check-in with yourself, right? See what's going on. I mean, I personally was intermittently monitoring my blood sugar, you know, the, the entirety of my pregnancies, because of course I have like a, I'm just one of those, use myself as a lab rat people, but I know the science around glucose and pregnancy, and it really is optimal for our blood sugar to be within a fairly low and, and tight range um, for the majority of our pregnancy for, to optimize our baby's development, to optimize their, really their lifelong metabolic function, their lifelong pancreatic function. So um, whatever you choose, just 
choose something, do check, do, do check. But if you don't want to do the glucola, check your blood sugar with a glucometer, <laughs> like, but do do something please to check because like the consequences of undiagnosed unmanaged is really severe. And I, I've actually had some personal case studies, um, like clients who, you know, they decline all testing and then there were some really adverse outcomes with their pregnancy and their baby, you know, really what, like there's many things that can go wrong when your blood sugar is too high, but some of the, the biggest like scary things are, are like the immediate delivery and the immediate baby's transition period. Um, Mm. so the one they always throw out is, Oh, your baby's going to be too large. And I don't want to jump into any of that fear mongering stuff. You can have perfectly healthy baby that is larger than average. In fact, I was a nine pound baby, perfectly healthy. But when you have gestational diabetic babies that are larger than average, this is typically because blood sugar levels were super high. The baby's insulin levels were super high and their body composition is not healthy. Like they're essentially born like with a way higher than average percent body fat and proportionally lower muscle mass And because their insulin levels are so high when they're born and you cut the cord and you cut off that consistent blood sugar supply, their blood sugar crashes, they go hypoglycemic. It's, it's a medical emergency. Uh, Oftentimes their lungs can have challenges developing properly because of the high glucose load as well. And so there's been some really, really tragic things I've seen personally from people who have opted out and they actually did have blood sugar issues. Like one in particular, she went on to have another pregnancy and did test and she, she actually required like fairly high doses of insulin to keep her blood sugar in range, um, in her pregnancy. And it just was like not caught her first pregnancy because she didn't want to do the test. And so that's why I'm like, well, test something. If you're not going to do the glucola, test your blood sugar and just give yourself that reassurance that you're all good to go, you know? Yeah. For, I remember for my first pregnancy, I was just kind of starting to dive into like ingredients and stuff. And I had midwives and they handed me the bright orange glucola bottle. Oh yeah. That's and the I remember, worst one. Yeah. Flipping it over and seeing it had like yellow number five and yellow number six on it. And I was like, I'm not going to take this. Do yeah. you have something else? Like I'm not going to drink this. Um, so I don't remember what they gave me, but it didn't have artificial. Yeah. Sometimes the lemon lime one doesn't have the colors and doesn't have the brominated vegetable oil. You just have to check on the ingredients and see what's in there. And nowadays there's these other options, or you could buy, literally buy a bag of dextrose, which is glucose, measure out 50 grams on a gram scale, mix it with water and like make your own. Like that would be the like purest of options, only glucose and water, right? You could do that. Um, or for somebody who's extremely low risk, you could just test your blood sugar at home and not yeah. force yourself to do the massive uh, sugar load. You know, I, I didn't participate in that in my second pregnancy. I just monitored my blood sugar instead. Yeah, for for my third, that's what I did. I just I monitored my blood sugar, and it was a lot of fun, honestly. And it kind of got me really interested into that and. Um, Last year, at some point, I wore a CGM regularly, and I'm a huge, I think it's really helpful for people. Yep, absolutely. Agree. Um, okay, so 
If someone does have gestational diabetes, what are some basic steps that they could take aside from buying your book and reading it? (laughs) Yes. So yes, if you get diagnosed, certainly the real food for gestational diabetes would be the book of choice for you because it's entirely devoted to blood sugar and it really comes from the angle of talking you off the ledge of all the fear mongering that you're likely getting from your provider. There's just a variable level of understanding of the diagnosis and like the spectrum on which it exists in conventional care. So if you don't happen to be working with somebody who really specializes in this area, likely everything you're hearing is um, worst case scenario. It's either that or they completely downplay it and it's, oh, it's no big deal at all. And they give you obscenely high blood sugar targets that are like (laughs) dangerously high. It's one or the other, I've noticed. Um, So get that book because that'll help you a lot. And it's really written from the perspective of helping you look at this, you know, objectively and calmly and understand that if you're able to keep your blood sugar in the healthy range for the majority of your pregnancy, you're really at no higher risk of any of these adverse outcomes that everybody tries to scare you with. So the first thing, of course, is seeing where your blood sugar is at. You got to test to see what's happening. Like, how severe is your case? How carbohydrate intolerant are you? What is your blood sugar like in the morning? What is it like after meals? Are we talking about wearing like a continual glucose monitor? Are we talking about using like the finger strip poke things? Like what are, how would you test this? Would you be testing it in the office or would you be testing it this at home? This would be home glucose monitoring. And the most common way would be with a finger stick glucometer where you use a lancet, little needle pokes Mm -hmm. your finger, you put a drop of blood on a test strip, and then the meter gives you your blood sugar reading. And so the standard is that you test your blood sugar four times a day. So fasting first thing in the morning before you've had anything to eat or drink, and then after each meal, depending on your provider, that might be one or two hours after, and they might have different, you know, thresholds for what's optimal than I do. Um, But yeah, it's typically four times a day. CGMs, I think are, you know, very helpful, but they're, it, it is kind of new-ish. I mean, certainly since I've been in the field, you know, CGMs were only used in type 1 diabetic pregnancies um, when I was first in practice. And we didn't have these, like, prescribers weren't offering them nearly as often as they are now. And some are more willing to pr- prescribe them in pregnancy than others. Like in the US, you have to get a prescription for a CGM. In other countries, you you don't. Most of the time, they're available just over the counter at a pharmacy like a regular glucometer, right? Um, so it's a, if it's available to you easily, they could be really helpful. You see much more detail about what's happening. I still remember, I still recommend rather cross-checking it with your glucometer because sometimes, you know, they're not exactly the same, you know, the glucose in your fingertip capillary glucose is not always the same as what's in your interstitial fluid, which is what you're technically testing with a CGM, or there can be a lag time, but you definitely see your patterns. You see how much and how rapidly, how quickly you're spiking, how much you drop. You could see overnight patterns with CGM. They're really, really helpful if they're available. It's just, they're not always readily available to people. 
Real quick, what are your thresholds out of curiosity? Because you mentioned that yours would be different than other providers. Yeah, so I I go with the recommendations that we worked on at the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, which is also called Sweet Success, and it's the same ones that most people are using internationally, um, which is 90 milligrams per deciliter for fasting blood sugar, 90 milligrams or lower, um, and after meal, typically trying to keep it less than 120 milligrams per deciliter for the the spike. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I feel like that is slightly lower. Um, so in pregnancy, your your blood sugar levels are lower than outside of pregnancy. They actually average about 20% lower. So like the healthy range is lower than regular non-pregnant adults. And that okay. surprises a lot of people. So you'll, you'll see in women without gestational diabetes, like their average blood sugar levels over 24 hours is like 88 milligrams per deciliter. Mm. Um, and their mealtime readings rarely spike over, you know, 110. Um, so even these tar- targets are not targeting like a true normal, um, but they are primarily based on some, actually some very uh, extensive data of over 23,000 pregnant women from 11, 11 different countries um, looking at blood sugar levels and adverse outcomes for baby, like blood sugar dropping too low at birth, baby being significantly larger than average, um, fetal uh, insulin levels, cord blood, and a reflection of cord blood uh, insulin levels called C-peptide. Um, those levels, like the adverse outcomes are all significantly lower if blood sugar is kept in a more strict, strictly lower range than what some of the other guidelines have. So some of the other guidelines aren't there. Those levels aren't set specific to pregnancy. So they're using the same, Mm. you know, if you're targeting for 140 milligrams per deciliter after a meal, that's just targeting adult non-pregnant diabetes goals. Yeah. And, and we have data showing significantly higher, you know, adverse outcome rates in women who are, you know, regularly spiking to 140 after their meal. Arguably that's, that's, you know, that's 30 milligrams per deciliter higher than a woman who doesn't have gestational diabetes. So, you know, an occasional spike, really no big deal, but day in, day out, three times a day or six times a day or staying high all night that's what's associated with the greater risk. And again, like my, my biggest thing is how does it impact the baby later in life? Like immediately postpartum medical intervention aside, that's its own thing. But long-term, like these babies born to mothers that have inadequately controlled blood sugar, their child's risk of developing diabetes is anywhere from six to 19 fold higher than a baby wow. born to a mom who had blood sugar in the healthy range. You are literally programming their metabolism, their pancreas, their insulin resistance for life with this in utero exposure. So wow, That's it's intense. like I can, I can be in two camps, right? Because I'm very mm-hmm. much like a, I, a huge proponent of you know, least medical intervention possible. You know, I myself had my two babies at home, (laughs) like 
all for all of that. But I also take blood sugar levels seriously. You know, like we need to, there's, there's like a threshold, like half of Americans right now have, have some form of diabetes. Most of it, uh, pre-diabetes or type two diabetes that's undiagnosed. And so we see this same elevated rate of gestational diabetes. It's the same pathophysiology. We see the rates rising in pregnancy as well. So having a diagnosis or identifying high blood sugar and then proactively working to lower it, that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to have a higher adverse outcome rate or that you need, you know, to have a medically managed birth or have, you know, something go totally awry. It's like you're, you're you see the warning light coming on in your car and instead of being like, eh, it's not a problem, you, you take it into the mechanic and you're like, okay, something's off here. Can we do something about this? And a lot of times, you know, we didn't talk about what to do about gestational diabetes, but oftentimes the inter- intervention is not all that complicated. It's like eating more of the foods that don't raise your blood sugar and eating less of the foods that do raise your blood sugar. And when you do eat foods that are blood sugar raising foods, AKA carbohydrates, you're having them paired with non blood sugar raising foods like fat and protein and fiber, or having them after you've had your fat and protein fiber to mitigate your blood sugar spike. It doesn't have to be super complicated. Guidelines make it extremely complicated because they tell you to eat a high carb diet, and then you're like, "What? What the heck? My blood sugar is still high." But it doesn't have to be complicated. It's very manageable in the majority of cases. Um, yeah. Have you have you heard about the glucose goddess? Yes, she's she's like all the rage right now. People are obsessed with her. Wait, I have no um, idea who this is. Oh, that's so funny. She wrote a book, which admittedly I have not read the book, but I I have so many family members that have read the book and are now telling me, oh my gosh, this is, this is an amazing book. But I, I, so I don't know, I can't speak for, you know, my thoughts on it. But um, apparently one of the things that she recommends is obviously ordering your foods in a certain order, which yes, that makes sense. Um, but so now I'm seeing family members eat their salad first and, and then their protein. And then at the end of the meal, they're eating their dessert. But it's so funny because they're still saying things like I can still eat dessert and I can still drink and I can still do this, but I just have to do it in a different order. Um, yeah, it's, I, I love Jesse's stuff. And we actually have, if you go back on her Instagram page, so several years ago, we did an Instagram live on gestational diabetes. I I would think that it's still up there on her page. Um, her stuff is great. And, and there is definitely science behind it. You know, you can lower your blood sugar spike after a meal, you know, 30, 40% oftentimes with these things. Um, that said, you know, carbohydrates will still raise your blood sugar. So these, these ordering of foods will still lower the spike, but it won't lower the spike as much as eating a smaller portion of those carbohydrate rich foods. And in some cases, gestational diabetes, for example, that that often does need to happen. It'll depend woman to woman, um, but still like <laughs> reigning in the portion of that is oftentimes still an important um, aspect, which I think she acknowledges as well. But people, of course, get caught up on, well, if I do it in this order, then if I eat this, then it cancels out that. And it 
it's like kind of like it 30 to 40 percent cancels out your blood sugar spike from it right but it doesn't uh prevent the spike from happening whatsoever right yeah yeah I, I'm just I get a kick out of family members that are like I'm still eating or drinking and I'm still eating my dessert <laughs> I'm just like okay yeah um but anyway well Corey yeah do you do you have any other questions about gestational diabetes that you want to ask no, I think, um, no, I don't. <laughs> I, I'm, it's, <laughs> GD is such a huge topic and obviously that's why you wrote a whole book on it. So, um, for us to be able to talk about it in, you know, 15 minutes is, is an overview. So if anybody needs a deeper dive, obviously go, go get Lily's book. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Which, you know, we had asked, well, do you have any solutions? And the solution is go read her book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think that, you know, we're, we're conscious of your time and we don't want to take too much more of it. But if you are open to it, we might be, we would love to have a second part with you where we just focus on postpartum and yeah. talk a little bit also about babies, feeding babies and salt. Because I, I really oh, want yeah. to talk about salt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that article I wrote on salt and baby food, you know, I wrote that like, well, we could talk about it in another interview, I guess, but I I did write it preemptively because when you have a public platform, Mm -hmm. it, you just, everybody has a need to comment on every single choice that you make, particularly when it surrounds pregnancy and babies. Um, And so I was, I think I wrote it the time I was about to start solids with my second baby. And I was like, oh man, I'm just going to get bombarded with all the people about the salt issue. And like, I really don't think this is an issue, but I need to look into this. Like what, what is the data on this? Like, am I, am I wrong to be not worried about just giving her whatever we're eating? And so that's what sparked <laughs> that article. And it, it does seem like it, it feels like almost everything I look into where I'm like, okay, there's this guideline and it, it's like every single baby feeding expert, at least before I wrote that article. Now some people have changed their stance is like, no salt, no salt. Like everybody mm-hmm. takes that one, like they'll make their entire platform about how to avoid any your baby from getting any sodium from foods okay well you can't have that because it's too high salt like no matter what it is it's like that was the primary the central consideration i was like wow the evidence behind this must be like really strong because everybody is so sure of it and so to dive into the origins of it and how just lacking the evidence is yeah, that was uh, that was definitely a wake up call, and I was like, "Well, guess I have to write an article about this." And then anybody who complains that my daughter's eating has a little bit of sea salt on her egg at <laughs> eight months old <laughs> can uh, can just I'll just send them the article. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have yeah. referenced that article so many times, and it's a pretty lengthy one. I want to say it's like. What is it like 10 pages, 12 pages? That's what it feels like. I don't um, know. A lot of the articles on my website are like 
six to 10,000 words at this point. It's just like people want me to go into the weeds and I'm capable of doing it. It takes a lot of time, but yeah, yeah, this, that was, that definitely ended up being a more, more well-read post than I had ever anticipated. (laughs) Oh, totally. Well, we won't give it away for anyone who's just on the edge of their seat. You'll just have to hopefully listen to part two. Um, Or or go read the article. (laughs) Or go read the article. Yeah. If you want to sit down, it's a fabulous article. Um, Maybe sit down with a cup of bone broth and some salt in it. Um, (laughs) Because bone broth without salt tastes like dishwater. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Awful. Inedible. A lot of things are inedible without without salt. salt. Yes. Truly. And we expect our babies to be able to enjoy food. Like, come on, people. I know. Makes no sense. Yeah. One one last super fast question. Yeah. Just because I feel like also this is a big question that a lot of pregnant people have, but it's the, well, can I eat soft cheeses and fish <laughs> and deli meats and things like that? So like the recommendations of you can't eat soft cheeses. What is it? No sushi. soft cheeses, no deli meat, no sushi. Actually, it's like no fish at all, right? I don't I even remember. Just, oh, maybe it is. I don't remember. At one yeah. point, maybe it was one of my earlier children. I remember being told I wasn't allowed to f- eat fish. And I was like, oh, thank God. Now I have an excuse not to eat fish. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah. Entirely. Just a sh- just a brief question. <laughs> <laughs> can of worms opened. Um, yeah. Okay. Can of no, worms. You're right. You're right. It is a can of worms. So maybe give, uh, I don't know, like. A five seconds. I'll talk about I'll talk about a how about I talk about eggs and and fish. So um yeah, the foods to avoid stuff is also it feels like they just picked these things out of a hat and, and added them to the list. Um good to know. <laughs> yes. Well, it's just arbitrary. I mean, our concerns for most of these things are food safety concerns, which is logical because your immune system does change during pregnancy, making you more susceptible to foodborne illness. However, the foods that are on the avoid list, which by the way, varies by country, I have learned now, um, in the US anyways, it, it primarily centers around certain animal foods. Like you avoid these specific animal foods, but you look at the rates of foodborne illness from those foods or like countrywide food poisoning cases. It's like the vast majority are from raw fruits and vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> Those aren't on the list. Cantaloupe and so it's like, and things. Okay, everybody's worried about eggs with runny yolks. The, the eggs represent 2% of foodborne illness outbreaks in the U.S., whereas raw fruits and vegetables represent 46%, like the mm-hmm. large of all foods. Like that's like the largest proportion is coming from raw fruits and vegetables. Nothing about raw fruits and vegetables on the avoid list, right? So it's arbitrary. With with the eggs with runny yolks, it's likely going to be fine. The chances that an egg contains salmonella, which is what you're concerned about with eggs with runny yolks, is 1 in 12,000 to 1 in 30,000 eggs. Very, very slim. Even if you eat eggs every single day, that you're even going to come in contact with a single egg that contains salmonella. Furthermore, like the rates of severe infection with salmonella, like salmonellosis or whatever they call it, extremely, extremely low, um, even in pregnancy, fraction of a percent. Okay, so very, very low risk. 
if you, for your anxiety's sake or whatever mental well-being, feel, hey, I don't even want to risk it at all. Just please, if you're if you're going to take this advice, please still eat eggs. Like you could eat them with the yolks cooked. You could do hard boiled. You could do scrambled. Um, but please continue to eat them because if your diet doesn't have them, you're pretty much like it's very very likely that you're not going to be eating enough choline. So like please just keep eating them, even if the yolks are cooked. The fish conversation is uh, complicated because you have the food safety concerns over raw fish. And then you have the mercury concerns Mm -hmm. over fish. And I actually just wrote an additional article on this on my site. I can't remember what it's called. Fish in pregnancy. Can you eat too much fish in pregnancy? I think is the title of the article. I was on... um, the Genius Life podcast, and there was a, we had a conversation about seafood that got made into a reel that then went viral on Instagram and everyone's freaking out because they're still hearing from some providers that you can't have any fish in pregnancy. That That is a lie. Like even the FDA says 12 ounces of seafood per week in pregnancy and then um, avoid the high mercury ones, swordfish, shark, king mackerel, tilefish, limit tuna to six ounces per week. But they do recommend 12 ounces per week for pregnant women. Um, this new line of data that I've you know, outlined in that new blog post goes into more detail on some of the other areas of controversy. Like what if you eat more than 12 ounces per week? Is that doing harm? Um, does the, the mercury in fish uh, harm baby's brain development? You know, people are eating fish to get these beneficial nutrients. Everybody focuses on DHA and omega-3 fat, but there's a lot of other brain supportive nutrients in fish, iodine, iron, B12, and so on. Um, and when you look at that data in totality, there's actually no, they've identified no level of seafood intake that is harmful that has harmful outcomes for baby's brain development. Um, even with the slightly higher mercury exposure that you get from eating fish, brain development is better in mothers who consume fish and seafood in pregnancy than in those who avoid. Um, it turns out like the selenium content in fish helps to like offset in some ways the mercury intake. It, it prevents it from being absorbed and or enhances excretion, but it reduces like mercury accumulation and toxicity in the body. Um, so that is one possible mechanism. But even if your mercury levels go up, like if it is specifically from seafood consumption, not related to adverse neurological outcomes in the baby, if your mercury levels are related to other sources of mercury exposure, and amalgam fillings are actually the number one source of exposure. Those are in fact associated with adverse neurodevelopmental outcomes. So very interesting that it's like specific to where, where the mercury exposure is um, happening, where, where it's coming from. So, uh, you know, the whole advice to uh, not eat fish or to limit your intake arbitrarily really does not hold true. I do still suggest, you know, low mercury fish when possible. That obvi- that's just like common sense. Of course, you're going to want to choose low mercury options. There are, you know, I've been sent guidelines from Japan and guidelines from Alaska where they're specifying like 
in areas where they tend to be eating these larger and predatory um, fish and sea mammals, they actually have like more specific guidelines on like, okay, like this specific type of shark has like X amount of mercury. So limit yourself to X portion, like once a month or something, there are more specific guidelines for people who are really into seafood. If you want to go and, and dig those up, they do exist. Like in the Alaska ones offhand, I remember it was like, you know, the halibut was like limits were based on the size of the halibut. Like these are people who are often fishing their own fish. So it's sure. like, okay, if yeah. the halibut is less than 40 pounds versus greater than 40 pounds, like the less than 40 pound one, smaller, shorter lifespan, eaten fewer things that contain mercury, lower mercury concentrations, you can have more of that versus the halibut from, you know, a larger fish, which for those of us who aren't fishing <laughs> ourselves, <laughs> you don't really know when you're just buying a filet and you're probably not buying halibut because it's like 30 bucks a pound. But in Alaska, which I have lived there before, it's like free food. You know, you pay your fishing license and it's free food. Um, so if you're really into seafood, you know, you could look up those those more specific guidelines. But yeah, overarching, uh, you know, um, takeaway here is that seafood is beneficial, eggs are beneficial, benefits outweigh the risks. Excellent. There you have it, folks. <laughs> Corey's like, darn it. <laughs> <laughs> I have actually gotten to the point where I still really, really, really cannot stand the eggs. But I have been very intentional about feeding my family because I have you know, four kids um, and my husband loves fish and I have been very intentional about feeding them fish at least usually once a week or seafood of some sort and i have gotten to yep. the point where i don't hate it so yeah this is a really good step in the right direction <laughs> well and to level set here like i you know my mom does not really like fish and seafood so i'm pretty sure other than an occasional can of tuna i don't think she ate almost any seafood in pregnancy and i think my brain is fine. Like there's all these things that are like, <laughs> you know, you can make, you can like level up and with more knowledge, you're like, Oh, that's beneficial. But, um, you also get, I mean, the omega threes are a bit challenging to get other places, iodine, you have to be intentional about, but there are other foods that are also beneficial. Like your, your kid's not going to end up like, you know, the, the inverse of seafood is beneficial is not necessarily also true. Like no seafood means your baby's brain development is harmed or something. Right. Right. Um, I, it took me a long time to even enjoy seafood because I just didn't eat a whole lot of it growing up because my mom didn't like it. So it took moving to Alaska to eat a bunch of seafood. It's just so readily available and so good um, to like learn to like it, learn how to cook it. And um yeah, I'm with you. We we try to do fish on a more regular basis. It's not my default favorite choice either. And so I have to like m make an effort to put it on the table. So I'm with you. That's so interesting that you lived in Alaska. Yeah. Wow. It was fun. What What part of Alaska? Kodiak. It's an island. Oh, wow. I, I don't know it. <laughs> Yeah, I've heard no, of Kodiak. It's, it's a uh, what? I think it's like a twelve-hour ferry to the nearest. Yeah, you're. It's remote. It is remote. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 
I won't ask why, although I'm definitely <laughs> no. Husband's job. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's just yeah, so cold. Fun. Uh, yeah, it's cold. <laughs> I'm aware. And the produce, the produce sucks. The animal foods are amazing. The produce sucks because you can't can't grow so anything. <laughs> yeah. Your growing season's really short, and the climate is not such that you can grow things very easily. It's a struggle. So, yeah, my diet felt- changes dramatically based on uh, yeah. where where I live, as it should. Geographically, your diet changes based on where you live and what's available, right? There's always right. pros and cons. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, so cool. Okay. Um, I know we are totally at the end of our time, yeah. and I thank you, you so you much. I just... Yeah. This has just been so awesome. So thank you. And thank you for your work with your books. Um, thank you for, you know, the continuation of all the stuff that you keep putting out um, for free that people can access. It's just really valuable and we really appreciate it. Thank you. We appreciate Lily's brain. <laughs> <laughs> all right, um, friends. Um, Lily, do you want to give people uh, information on where they can find you? You know, your books are obviously on Amazon and probably everywhere else, but where else can people find you? Yeah, you can find me on my website. So lilynicholsrdn.com. You can download the first chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy for free. Definitely check that out, especially if you want to see, since we were talking about, you know, micronutrient levels and macronutrients and nutrient density that in that um, free download there's like a comparison chart between a standard prenatal meal plan following the conventional guidelines versus one of mine and then the, the nutrient breakdown. That that usually blows people's minds. So definitely download that. Um, check out the blog. There's 250 plus articles up there for free to read. Use the search bar to go through and, you know, find something of interest. Um as for there's a tab for my books, so you could see like if you want links directly for where to get those instead of looking it up on Amazon, you can go right there. And yeah, as of new book will be out in February, hopefully February 2024 on fertility. And you can find me on Instagram, Lily Nichols RDN. Same, same, same as my website. So easy to remember. And yeah, thanks for having me on. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Modern Ancestral Mamas. Check out the show notes for the resources. You can find Christine on Instagram at NourishTheLittles and online at NourishTheLittles.com. You can find Corey on Instagram at ForNutrientSake and online at ForNutrientSake.com. Follow us on Instagram at Modern Ancestral Mamas. expressed in this episode are those of the guests. They do not reflect Corey and I's and Modern Ancestral Mama's personal views and opinions. 
We do not take responsibility for any ideas expressed during the podcast interview. The information contained in this show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical advice and should not replace your relationship with your healthcare practitioner.